Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Other Minds and Hands. This is episode number 34. And today, Maggie and I are joined by special guests. So this week, we're going to be sh shifting gears, as we said we would. We're going to take a little break from the Lord of the Rings. And today, we are talking about Dune, um, which is, of course, actually another of my favorite books. So I'm really excited to talk about this. I was uh, very pumped for the recent adaptation. <clears throat> we're going to be spending our time focusing on the the first half of the new adaptation, <clears throat> which was released last year. Well, actually, what, two years ago now? Yeah, um, new one. Year and a half. And, uh, uh, and then also, of course, with some glances back at the... Uh, the, the classic 1984 uh, Dune adaptation um, directed by David Lynch. So, uh, and we are joined our special guests, longtime friends of Signum, Dominic Nardi and Trevor Brierley, who are the co-editors of a new book called Discovering Dune. Uh, so we are we are fortunate to have some uh, real Dune Ooh. experts uh, with Wait, us hold here. It up for, hold it up for a minute. Let us see it properly. There we go. <laughs> oh, All that's right. fair. Mine's reversed for some reason. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, so I am I am excited to uh, uh, I'm excited to talk about Dune. Um, the there was so much hype about this last uh, uh, adaptation that I have to admit I was really worried uh, because you know it was one of those things like building up huge huge expectations. Um, uh, what did you guys? think of it what was your primary reaction to seeing this latest film adaptation i feel like we should start from the very beginning what were your first thoughts okay. when the first trailer came out you know oh yeah yeah yeah. yeah that's right let's start back before you first saw it that's a, that's a that's a better plan yeah like what was your first like initial reaction to like ooh, new one or oh god new one <laughs> um i'm always glad to see new adap adaptations it's interesting to see people doing things differently um, it's fun to compare them. Um, I was hopeful. I I liked a lot of things that I saw in the trailer, and I was hopeful that we were going to see something, you know, really really worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, for really going back to the beginning, um, before the first trailer, before the announcement of the official Doom movie, I had become a fan of Denis Villeneuve, the director. He directed Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Before that, he uh, directed Prisoners, Arrival. A bunch of other just excellent movies, especially science fiction movies. So um, shortly after Blade Runner 2049 came out, I read in the news that he um, you know, wistfully said something like, you know, I would love to direct Dune one day. That's his dream project. And lo and behold, the powers that be got the, got the rights in place and he directed Dune. So I was pretty hopeful mm -hmm. even from that first uh from the first rumblings we had that he might be attached to the project. And one of the reasons I think um, I thought he was a good fit for Dune is because, as I suspect most people listening to this know, Dune is a pretty serious book and it's a pretty intense book. And Denis Villeneuve knows how to direct serious, intense scenes. You know, it's not, and I knew that this wasn't going to be a comedy or slapstick or something that treated the characters with disrespect. So. And they really played that up in the early days of the marketing too. his own passion for it. So it let, that interested me in terms of like the fan management side of things. Like they were talking about how he kind of wanted to cut his teeth on Blade Runner and Arrival so he would be prepared to do Dune justice. I thought that was a nice angle. Like I, he, he wanted to make sure that this was right. So therefore, of course, as fans, you're going to be like, okay, maybe you're in good hands. 
Yeah. <laughs> and <clears throat> Dom, I would say it, it also seems like it, it kind of put you in a, the, what, the thing, the thing that jumps out at me about your reaction there um, is thinking, you know, you were thinking from the beginning, um, not about, in a sense, primarily like Dune showing up on screen, but about the like the work that was going to be done by this particular director, right? That is, it seems like you were already kind of thinking about this film first and foremost as like a creative enterprise by this, uh, you know, by this uh, filmmaker, which seems to me a really happy place to begin a relationship yeah. <laughs> with. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the things that we often talk about is that, you know, an adaptation, of course, is first and foremost its own work of art, right? Um, it, 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 it's importantly connected with the source text, um, but its first responsibility has to be being an excellent film uh, on its own. Being a you good know, story. Yeah, it has mm -hmm. to be, it has to be doing, you know, whatever it is, whether it's, it's a film or some other genre or whatever, but like, it has to be what it is and it has to do a good job of being what it is. Um, so the fact that you were really interested in seeing, you know, just, a film made by this uh, by this filmmaker does seem to put the thing on <laughs> profitable <laughs> grounds from the very beginning. Um, cool. There were there were a couple good angles with that, weren't there? Like we had this director who has a really good pedigree and an incredible visual style. So I hope we talk about the visuals of of Dune. Man. But also we had Timothy Chalamet, who has kind of a teeny bopper following, but of an indie variety. And then we have Zendaya, who came from the Disney backgrounds. Like you have these very strange pedigrees of actors being cast in these roles that you wouldn't necessarily assume. But I think that brought a load of different audiences to this film that maybe another person wouldn't necessarily engage with because it was like too sci-fi or whatever. So maybe it opened up a few doors, but it was nice to see them broaden their own net in, in all those choices. How about you, Trevor? What were some of your early reactions to the, like the idea of the adaptation? Like I said, I mean, I enjoy new adaptations. I enjoy comparing, and I enjoy kind of looking at how somebody's new vision and how they're how they're going to do something differently. Um, I was hopeful, like I said, with the trailer. Um, I think that my my impression was kind of from the beginning that maybe just maybe they're going to get the Fremen right. So I think if you don't get the Fremen right, then you're done. You might as well just, you know, go yeah. home. You have to get the Fremen right. And I think I think he's getting the Fremen right. And that means that means a lot to me. Mm -hmm. Um because that that to me the heart of the movie, at least as far as I'm concerned, has to do with the has to do with the Fremen and how their struggle and um you know, how the, how that intersects with what's happening with the Atreides. Mm -hmm. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's really hard to like put words on those things. Do you mind just talking a little bit more about like what would make the Fremen right in your perspective? Because I'm always curious about how filmmakers would then capture some of that essence and, and if he accomplished that. I, I think for me, I knew we might be in good hands with the very beginning of it where it starts with the Fremen and it talks about their struggle, how they've been... <clears throat> oppressed for so long they've been fighting for so long and you see that those later scene where stilgar comes in you know to the to the conference room he looks tired he looks like he looks like somebody who's a leader of a people who are constantly on the run constantly being persecuted he's tired he talks tired and that to me really 
gave us a full a, a picture of who the Fremen are and what they've been facing that I don't think I've seen in any of the other movies really well. Really yeah, well done. Yeah. If I could jump on that, because I felt yeah. the same way about the Fremen. Um, I think Dune is a really complicated story, and one of the reasons it's complicated because is because it, it comes across as a white savior narrative, even though it actually isn't. Paul is not the savior of the Fremen. And also the Fremen are not a bunch of helpless people with brown or darker skin. The Fremen have their own vibrant culture, but they also have a lot of agency in the book and they have a lot of dignity. And that's something that I think came across really well. Javier Bardem's performance of Stilgar mm. was great. He, he came into that room with Duke Atreides and he was not bowing down to anybody. You know, he was not in a secondary position. He was not learning from the off-worlders he was teaching them the ways of his world um and that's i think what worked about the friend for me like i did not feel like they were passive characters just following paul right right yeah and that um just as you guys were mentioning that that it was to me when i i when i just rewatched the film which is actually only the second time i saw it i saw it in the theaters and then i just watched it again and um it, that was one of the things that really struck me most was their the frame the fact that they framed the whole story from the start as a fremen story um and you think i just to make the point of contrast the david lynch film frames it with princess irulan which is a totally defensible frame mm. like it was it's accurate to the book it's exactly it really I, when i was watching I, so i watched them in that i watched the david lynch i rewatched the david lynch one first and then i rewatched the new one and mm -hmm. um and when I was watching that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's really clever, like to start with the Princess Zero on frame, because it's, you know, her voice is so persistent throughout the book. And yet, of course, she never appears as a character until the very last moment. Um, but uh, but yeah, I was like, OK, you know, I, I see what they're doing there with the Princess Zero on frame. And that's that's interesting. And they so, and they framed it like really as an imperial story. They actually even leaned more heavily into the Princess Princess Zero on's role, showing her on screen and everything, you know, in, interacting with the emperor and whatnot. Um, but uh so again, totally defensible from the standpoint of the book. But then when I rewatched the new one and we had that Fremen frame at the start of the film, I was like, that's so much better. It's so much better. Um, I appreciate what they were trying to capture from the first mm -hmm. one. Um, but it, um, it does, it did really change things very, uh, uh, very importantly, I think. What do you guys think about... Because... I mean, Tom, as you said, the Princess Zero on frame is more accurate to the book. Um, framing the whole narrative as they did um, as a kind of Fremen narrative. And I would add, did it seem to you, hmm, I'm trying to figure out how to say this, the dreams, his dreams. Um, he has, you know, dreams of Chani in his, uh, uh, in, in the book, of course. The film, the, the new film, plays that up enormously, right? I mean, she appears on screen like 80 times before he meets her, right? I mean, he's constantly, everything that happens, he's having like flash forwards to her and she's the narrator of that initial framing sequence, right? Mm -hmm. And so it seemed to me that his Fremen visions were continuing, even though we weren't interacting with Fremen yet, like it continued to keep the Fremen as this sort of framing mechanism through the entire, like maintain the fact that even Paul's story was a Fremen story, in a sense, from the beginning, right? Before he even arrived uh, on Dune and was still on Kaladin. So um, 
that was, I, I thought, very, very interestingly done. But of course, it is a significant shift. I mean, in the book, the Fremen are mysterious at the beginning, right? We're, like, we're very firmly in the book, in the, from the frame, you know, from the standpoint of the Atreides with some glimpses into this, the viewpoint of the Harkonnens, right? Um, but, uh, but it's very much from the, like, colonizer's viewpoint. And they have differing views of the Fremen, and we talk about the Fremen a lot, but we don't actually interact with the Fremen, apart from that one appearance by Stilgar, um, until, you know, the night of the attack, uh, basically, when we get them in a couple, start getting them in a couple different places. Um, but anyway, I just, what I'm saying is, I liked it too, the Fremen frame. I, I liked it very much, but it actually doesn't seem... It seems like they're doing something different than what the book did in that way. Or do you think that they're coming a different way around to capturing a similar thing? What do you guys think about that? I think the latter, actually. Um, so if we can go back to the David Lynch film, one of the challenges I think that film had is in some ways, and I saw so just to be clear, I am somebody who usually likes adaptations to stick to the book. But I think the David Lynch film really struggled in sticking too close to the book sometimes. Dune, if you read the book, has a lot of interior monologue and characters thinking about what other characters think are thinking about. And, yes. um, and David Lynch literally said, OK, let's do a voiceover and voice the thoughts. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of clunky. And the Irulan is another example. The, there are epitaphs in the book, most of them written by Irulan, introducing each chapter. And David Lynch literally did that with Irulan at the beginning. And I just. I don't think that works as well for a movie, whereas I think the, the Denis Villeneuve version, the dream sequences um, are just are, are, are a combination of vision and sound and uh, areas where movies actually have a comparative, comparative advantage over books. Like you can't yes. have a sound, you can't have a, a short music sequence in a book. Um, so I think it work, just works that for that reason, but also, um, you know, even though there's a shifting perspective at the beginning, it ties thematically into Paul's arc. And if you notice, when uh, Chani is speaking and she's talking about like, their struggle for freedom, then she ends by saying, who, who will be our next oppressor? And then the camera cuts to Paul. And yes. I don't think that is a coincidence. <laughs> no, um, I noticed that. It is yeah. exactly the theme of Paul potentially becoming a dictator and becoming a charismatic leader who brings oppression to the Fremen. Um, that, In a very so different way than she was expecting when she said exactly. that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So it's it's getting that theme, but in a way that a movie can, because in a book, you cannot cut to a different image in a book, unless it's a picture book. But it's, right. Dune is right. not a picture book. <laughs> right, right. And even picture books don't have scores, unfortunately. So yes, yes, you're right. <laughs> you're right. Yeah, well, Trevor, you spoke of um, the, like, the need to get the Fremen right, which again, I, I completely, I can completely agree with. Um, do you think that that sort of, um, I was gonna say elevation, but that's not quite right. Sort of uh, placing of the Fremen at sort of front and center from the start um, is something that uh, contributed to, to help us understand them better. And if, if so, how, what, what, what do you think are some of the impacts that that has on our understanding of the Fremen in the film? I think it definitely gives us a sense that what we're going to see might start out with being about the Atreides and being about sort of the Imperium, which 
I think in some sense we can kind of identify with it's, mm -hmm. you know, obviously far in the future and very different, but I think we probably can identify a little bit more with the world of the Imperium than the world of the Fremen. So I, I think it immediately puts us into that Fremen world and immediately gives us the sense that this is, we're in something different. We're in a secondary world already from the very beginning. Um, so I think it, it really sets that up very strongly. That's a really interesting point. Because um, <clears throat> it is it is true, the, when we start off on Kaladin, right, the, the differences between that secondary world and our experience are kind of gentle, right? I mean, that is, they, they, it's one of those things where, you know, as you're reading Dune, you like, you come across things which are unexpected, but they're small things. I mean, like, you know, daily life within the Imperium is not wholly unlike ours. I mean, they, they have some different technologies and some different practices, mm -hmm. but, but it's not, it's not clear where the boundaries are exactly. Right. We'll get it like the, um, the, okay, I'm trying to remember exactly how chapter one chapter one is just the visit of uh uh the, uh, the reverend, the reverend Mother, right and the gom jabbar yeah. right so i don't think it's until like the pain box like i think the pain box is the first like sci-fi technology that we get i think if i'm recalling correctly I, i'm, I'm just trying to put spencer in there yeah yeah, yeah. maybe yeah exactly maybe one or two references anyway the point is it's fairly so Anyway, all this is to say I agree with you, Trevor. That kind of immersion into this is a completely different world, right? <clears throat> and even if there are, um, you know, and we get, think of how in the film, because I wasn't processing it this way, I was thinking mostly of like, wow, from the Fremen perspective, but you're right, we were getting the, you know, like uh, spaceships and, you know, shielded paratroopers and all this kind of thing, like in the in that opening sequence, right, in Fighting the Fremen. It was it was much more firmly situating us in this is a sci-fi world, here are some of the things that happen in this sci-fi world. Um the spice farming and everything else. I mean it was it was it was very much more alien than the opening sequence with Paul on Caladan in the book is alien to our own mm. experience. And that's the word I find most powerful, alien that mm -hmm. I almost think that might have been his entire purpose because in the book we have kind of the time to sit with that and become part of that world. I don't feel like that was the purpose of Dune film. It was awe-inspiring in every way visually. You know, those those establishing shots that were so wide with those massive ships and the tiny scout ships going down and just the mm -hmm. scale of everything and the way these shots were set up with, with, with the scale. I feel like every shot just looked like an incredible piece of graphic art from the 70s. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like a beautiful concept. I don't know. Did you guys just see that New York Times article about um, uh, Tron AI uh, concept art created by an AI about Tron? So they compiled all the different descriptions of Tron and created their own concept art. So not an actual artist did that. Um, and there's a whole documentary about that. And it's the same guy that did the documentary about the Dune that didn't get made. Um, mm. So it's just a really interesting comparison of just like the art of, of that era and what it inspired. And it was it was beautifully put together, but it made me relook at these shots and be like, whoa. And I feel like that was quite purposeful in setting up 
this other world. We didn't have the time like we do with the book to kind of feel that slow immersion. We had to be given that immersion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And it was pretty. Yeah. The visuals are really stunning. I was mm. completely blown away again. Uh, it was one of the primary impacts of the second viewing was just, I was, it was, it's, it's quite astounding. Um, and the costuming too, the mm -hmm. tallness, the, oh yeah, there were so many parts. <laughs> and I think that's one of the reasons why, even if there, the movie deviates from the book, and even if I wish the banquet scene had been in the movie, mm -hmm. um, just the visuals, the costumes, the acting, brings so much to the story, especially because Frank Herbert is not a very descriptive writer. Like mm -hmm. I've read Dune several times. I can't tell you what Jessica wears. You know, right. I, I right. barely tell you what she looks like in the book, but in the movie, you just get, it's, and even, even the David Lynch film has some interesting visual choices. They do. It does. Yeah. I, I, yes. Yeah. I, I didn't love all of them, but yes, uh, many of them, it was, I guess I, really enjoyed the David Lynch film way more than I ever remembered doing uh, when I watched it this past time. It was very interesting. Um, uh, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I don't even know what to say about the visuals apart from just like the awe, the scale, Maggie, that you mentioned was one of the things. And this is, of course, that's a, a, a major theme, well, motif at least, in the books, right? I mean, like the book is frequently mentioning like when they're traveling from Caladan to uh, uh, to Arrakis and you know we get this brief glimpse of how enormous a guild highliner is and how everything that they have from their planet is fitting in this one small corner and and there could be you know mm. you know 12 other sets of passage you know like it's so just this idea of of the enormousness you know which kind of conveys this idea that the guild is bigger than planets, right? You know, like it's, uh, but yeah, the, the, and then the same thing with the emphasis on the scope of the Harkonnen attack, right? Which is the scale of which, you know, Thufur Hawat just like never even imagined could possibly have been paid for. Um, it's, it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying to watch. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. The, um, my favorite, moments are the uh, the uh for just the, the that that visual sense of scale the landing of the ship on caladan like that like when that like egg <laughs> descends from the sky right and then the ramp coming down i mean oh man it's just so good um the... i feel like that bears rewatching, right like when you think about how big things are you can also think about how small things are like we have those massive massive ships the massive massive city but then we have that like tiny insect that tries to kill him. We have right. these really minuscule things that are, are quite highlighted as well. There doesn't seem to be much pills. in the middle. <laughs> Sorry? The little tiny sleep pills that look like Ambien or something. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> yeah, you also just... have an ecosystem with giant sandworms. And then at the opposite end, you have the Maudive, you know, the little desert mouse. The desert mouse. Yeah. yeah. There's nothing was... in the middle. Yeah. I was so glad that they preserved. It was one of the things that I felt that I felt the loss of most keenly in the Lynch film was the mouse. Um, you know that he he <laughs> like 
took his name after the moon instead of the mouse in the David Lynch film. Um, I loved the 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 preservation of the mouse. Um, but yeah, of course, uh, Maggie, the magnitude of the sandworms, like that's the, mm. in a sense, that's the biggest thing in the film, right? Um, mm. in, in the whole book, re- really, too. And that image, that first image, like the first time we see one, where you have this enormous spice crawler, right? Which is like representing the, you know, this sort of technological world of that we've been so awed by at various points. And then just to see the sandworm come up and swallow it whole. Um, like it was a Tic Tac. I mean, it was <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, that is, um, in a sense, I feel like that, um, that moment in the book is one of the thing that really kind of it's it's one of the I think what it's one of the defining moments in the book you know when that when the when the sandworm comes up and eats the 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 spice crawler um, as far as like really kind of if you want a pointer to like the themes of the book right and what's important in the book that that moment I think is is a really huge mm. one and I thought that was done uh, that was done so well what did you guys so one thing that one change that I thought was really interesting that they inserted in this film because that is such a big moment. And they were, they, they were doing that moment and they were doing that moment very well, I thought, but they took what I felt was a real risk by mixing another, like they, they added another thing to that scene, which was Paul's first exposure to the spice and his first spice visions, um, which was a lot I thought to add to that, that was one of the like riskiest things I felt going on, especially in that scene. But, um, but even in the films, I was like, wow, that was, um, really distracting in the middle of, you know, what I've always felt to be that really, really important moment. Um, what did you guys think of that? And the, the way that that was kind of overlaid at that moment? I think it worked out really well, actually. The, you know, you're starting with this moment where there's this crisis going on and there's machinery and they're trying to get everybody out. Um, and then it kind of cuts very quickly to all of a sudden we're focused on Paul and that his first experience and what's going on with him. I think that really juxtaposes those two very different views of Arrakis. You have machines that are there that take the spice and then you have the other part of the spice, which is these visions and hallucinations and so forth. I thought, I thought it did, I thought it worked out very well. So my experience with that scene was a little bit different and only in that, uh, you know, so, uh, the, uh, there were fan screenings of like five, 10 minutes of film, uh, several months before the film came out and I attended one of those. And so we got to see that scene and I think the scene of, of Jessica and Paul at a dining table in Caliban. So I saw that scene with the Spice Harvester kind of on its own in isolation, out of context from the rest of the film. Um, and I think, I suspect that uh, the marketing folks chose that scene because it is such an, as you said, it's crucial in the book. It's such a powerful mm-hmm. scene and the film nails it. So, um, and I, I think, yeah, I, I thought they. Um, I, I thought it worked, and I thought those changes worked. Um, and, I, and going back to what I was saying before, it, it ties into, it is consistent with Paul's arc. It is a change in the book, but it does not feel that they were doing something drastically different from his character, to his character. Now, if they had, I don't know, say, just purely hypothetically, if Paul had 
made it rain on Arrakis, because I don't think any director would ever do that in a Dune adaptation, <laughs> that would maybe not be a good idea. <laughs> the only defense I would offer, and I would not offer a strong defense of making it rain on Arrakis, um, is that it was... So, of course, the reference for those not familiar, that is what it's the very closing scene of the David Lynch film is that um, it uh, he, may, he basically makes it rain on Arrakis um, as the sort of outward symbol of like his. And so that's that's my first the first part of my defense is that it's like uh, the sort of the final symbolic gesture towards the I mean, the, the end of Dune is weird, like it's weird. Like there's just there are no two ways about that. The last moments in Dune in the book are strange. It's a strange and and often unsettling, and f- ending, and it doesn't feel resolved at uh, uh, almost at all. Really, um, you get a you get hints. I mean, we kind of. I mean, it's it's handled interestingly because of course th- there's there's a deliberate sort of irony in the book. Right on the one hand, he's um, we've been. Paul's been remembering the future like all the way through, especially in the second half of the book. Um, he knows, like, we're told what's going to happen. We've been told what's going to happen next all the way through. The only question is whether or not... So the closure is not like, let's show you what happened next, but rather, okay, and now he knows it's actually going to happen. You know, this, this, this thing that he was trying to... You know, so it's... Part of the weirdness of the ending, I think, is the way that Herbert is deliberately playing with the like temporal prophecy stuff that's going on with Paul. But it's still it's still not, you know, I can see why a filmmaker would be like, I want to put a clearer <laughs> bow on things. Mark. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I want that. And so in a sense, the. It, it felt to me, I mean, yes, like the, the mere idea of Paul somehow making it rain on Arrakis for no reason, what's like with no physics or meteorology behind that whatsoever was weird. But as a purely symbolic, like, element. Punctuation mark. Yeah. Of yeah. like, here is so, and, and thus does Paul Mwadib now establish a new era. And like, it, it's like the entire future climatological change of Arrakis and um, ushering in of the Fremen era and everything else all like put into one little symbol that took three seconds on film. Um, so like in that way, I was like, okay, right. I can kind of, I mean, it was, it was it was weird and odd. Like and... as a device, it works. <laughs> as but... a device, it works. Yeah, right. uh, in, but you can hear way. the groans around the world as it right. happened. Yeah, right, right. It's a risky device. It was. It was. Yeah. Um, but it, though, oh well. Okay, hang on. I was gonna. Uh, this is tempting me to think about how you think the second film is gonna end. But let's wait for speculation because that's <laughs> that's let's 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 finish talking about the first one first. Um, yeah. Maggie, go ahead. I don't know. I'm still back on visuals, and I'm just curious what you guys thought about design because you probably know more about like the work that went into it. But my husband and I were talking about it, and I'm like, I think the thing that I love about this most recent adaptation is how it's still kind of grounded in our own reality. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so many elements of this Dune that are just different enough to be alien, like the mm-hmm. the helicopters that are dragonflies, right? Like. Right. That is something I recognize. I understand how a helicopter works, but then all of a sudden the wings open differently and it flies differently. So 
I think in terms anthropopters of instead of ornithopters is kind of a bit, but <laughs> yeah. anyway, <laughs> yeah. Also made me think of olifants because it's the same kind of concept. Like it's just right. a little bit different that right. you're like, I recognize right. yeah. that, but um, so yeah, as a device, I just, I just liked that. I'm just curious if there's other things that stuck out to you visually that worked well. I, th I think overall, um, the color scheme really kind of stuck out mm -hmm. to me is you're, you're keeping these um, kind of gritty shades. It's, nothing's particularly terribly clear, but it's not particularly out of focus either. Um, so I really enjoyed the color scheme. I think they, 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 ex they communicated a lot through the color scheme. You have all the, you know, the gorgeous, powerful desert colors. But then in the world of the Imperium and the world of the Harkonnen, mm. you have these different kind of almost disgusting colors going on in the Harkonnen world. And the Atreides world is still kind of dark and a little gringy, a little grungy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Harkonnen world almost looked like moldering, didn't it? It was like, yeah, hey, yeah. yeah. Which really felt to me like they... I thought they captured the spirit of the Harkonnen world and the Harkonnen house so well in this film. Um, that was, I have to say, one of my biggest disappointments in the David Lynch film. Like of all of the things one can complain about, the Harkonnens were my one of my least favorite. I thought the Baron was terrible. Um, like he was just this like, you know, maniacally cackling madman all the way through. Whereas like the the Baron is a genius. You know, I mean, mm. he is a strategic genius. Um, ruthless, horrible, disgusting, but um, brilliant. Um, I thought that the, 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 the performances and the overall depiction, you know, Trevor, as you were saying, the visuals um, was, it was, uh, uh, it was so good uh, in mm. this, in this film. Can we talk well, a few minutes about the music? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just going to come back to that. I think that's probably my favorite part of the movie because they just got everything right. I mean, the the scenes where terrible things are happening, the music mm -hmm. just amplifies the, the terror. Like the whole scene with the attack on the Atreides is just, the music is just crushing. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. ethereal. It's, yeah. it's so powerful. And sometimes it's almost silent. It's so powerful. There's these long stretches... Yeah of just kind of uh, a metallic almost sound that turns into a musical note that I found that building suspense. So that, you know, the, there's so many different ways to build suspense in a film and they were so good at doing that, that you can have that long establishing shot with a single tone. And that is more terrifying than anything you could show me in that moment. Mm -hmm. yep. Yep. Yeah. Music was beautiful. I think it was quite divisive though, wasn't it? When there was, there was a lot of kickback about it. Hmm. I think the device, I have heard of a lot of criticism of the music. I've heard some folks saying that it maybe was forgettable or doesn't have the themes mm. that Toto's soundtrack for the 1984 film had, because it doesn't, it doesn't have themes. Like there's no, nothing it's you can hug for like yeah. Paul's theme or the Baron's theme. And, um, but or no, I thought Tolkien, the music worked since we well. talk about that so much. Right. Like Lord right. of the Rings, you can, you, you know, you can hum the ring race. You know, score. You just there's nothing, in, but I, I think that was deliberate. Uh, Hans Zimmer had talked about how he wanted the soundtrack to Dune to sound alien and foreign. Um, so I think that some of that otherness, that not 
almost did not being approachable in a humble way made made sense for the work. Even there were even the moments, and if I'm remembering correctly, I um I wasn't paying super close attention to the score this time through, but there were moments, and I think it was during the attack, um, uh, when the music was mostly just like this sort of like metallic discordant beats. Horn blares. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Beats and blares, um, which I remember hearing and I was like, that is chilling and feels really apropos. Um, but it is not, I mean, it, it certainly does not, Dom, exactly as you say, it's not like I'm going to be, you know, going to get this stuck in my head, you know, and get and be singing this all day or something like that. Um, it really was, there's something I think kind of um, both daring and also kind of humble about the score in that way, like to establish alienness, right? To make this clearly, um, you know, weird in the way that it was um and yet to um to to really effectively create that feel but at the expense of good music you know um that i thought was really interesting i still listened to it for weeks after though you know you're right it didn't have those catchy tunes that i sing along to and wish i could play on a piano or anything like that but it was somehow so haunting is the wrong word because it has such a negative connotation but it really engaging you know i, I kind of felt mm-hmm. like i had to keep engaging with it because i understood the story more if i listened to it and it told its own story and then when you add that to the visual story and then the words and then the performance it really played a very strong role in this adaptation yeah yeah in general i was a big i was a big fan i thought it um especially the way that it interacted with the visuals Mm. that sense of grandeur and and alien but but alien grandeur not like necessarily swelling orchestral yeah exactly um not like bringing out the big band or something but i mean that that sense of what you're seeing is is grand and imposing but very strange and very alien for instance the 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 recapitulation of the ship descent that when um, uh, when uh, uh, the Reverend Mother comes privately to Jessica, right? And so we get that like descent in the woods in the dark with the floodlights, the darkness and the lights and the black robed figures coming out, right? Um, that whole, like th- that sense of like mystery right on the edge of horror uh, that mm. we see in so many places, even though that like the scale of that was so much smaller than the scale of, of the other. Um, it, it's still like the, the the parallel was eerie, but like the you know the the darkness and the black and white palette and the, um, but anyway the the way that the music really sort of added to that sense of hauntingness. I mean, it was almost uh, alien in a, I felt in a frightening way at many mm. at many points, and I thought that that was very that that was very effective. Some of the folks in the Discord chat are, sorry, uh, so one of the things in Discord chat is that folks are actually mentioning that Zimmer made some of his own instruments for the music, joking Mm -hmm. that he spent a lot of time in the hardware store, but that is very much a Zimmer thing, just as we were talking about how this is very much a Denny Villeneuve movie. Hans Zimmer, one of the things he's been doing recently in his films, like Blade Runner 2049, is soundtracks that almost blend in with the sound effects. You know, Mm -hmm. they're, they're just parts of the soundtrack that almost sound like machines moving 
Mm-hmm. So, just yeah, again, a really interesting uh, uh, decision decisions across the board. Um, yeah. And I was going to point to the same thing that conversation is going on, and um, that that point that Meow indeed made. Um, Hans Zimmer actually said, "Why are sci-fi movies all classical music, like Star Wars with brass and strings?" I hadn't really thought about that, but like you said, Corey, using this kind of sound and these made-up instruments. That is so not what we expect. And I don't understand that sound because I don't know that instrument. So you can't show it to me and I can know what to expect. That automatically sets us on, on sh- like shaky ground of like, mm-hmm. what? You know, so mm-hmm. it, how powerful for a sound to be able to unsettle us. Yeah. Unsettling is, is mm-hmm. um, and that, that combination of the visuals and the sound um, that, and the, like emotional combination of awe and unsettled, right? Was to me a very characteristic feature of the experience of this film. Um, that it was um, it was beautiful and striking and awe-inspiring. Um, the visuals were, but again, but it was strange, mysterious, and unsettling. Uh, at the same time. Um, and thinking about those things, think about those things in connection with the book. Um, I felt that those elements, while not alien to the book, were more pronounced in the film than they were in the book. The book feels, I don't know, to, to me it feels more it's like I was saying before that the way in which when we're first introduced, it's like much like our world, but that we, we, we see the differences kind of gradually as we go through. And some of them are fairly profound as we find how far in the future they are. And, and, you know, the, um, the, the situation with the, and we, uh, the lance rod is never really explained and, and, you know, so we, it's not in book one, right? So we, we don't have any, um, really clear sense exactly of what's going on but the politics aren't alien like the politics seem understandable like you know we 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 can we you know we don't know all the vocabulary but we have some sense of that even things like you know um your chome prophets and stuff like you know yeah i still don't understand that by the end of the first book exactly but i i I understand enough to be able to uh to to again it doesn't seem alien it doesn't seem strange um it just it's just it's just a different setting um i felt that they really leaned into both you know all of those things which again which are all there in the book the grandeur uh the strangeness the unsettlingness of it um there are moments in the book where he really leans hard into that i felt the gum jabbar scene is one that really jumps out mm. in my mind as a place where um that's really being emphasized in the book um but i felt that the film went interestingly and productively beyond the book in these in the effects that it creates um i never had that the sense of the like of arakeen um uh that arakeen in the book just kind of felt like a city like it i mean it was strange because it was on arrakis and there were you know there were there were still characteristically um you know arrakis elements of the culture it's the water and everything but um but yeah the it was it was um i did think it went beyond the book which is what i find 
a thing I find a, a really interesting choice. And the fact that it seems to me a very, very successful choice. Um, is it is it good when a film adaptation does like brings out an element of the book, even if it's bringing it out further than the book? I don't know. I think it 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 felt it felt good. It felt successful in that way. Yeah, and I think if it's consistent with the themes and the character arcs of the book, um, and I, I think Danny Bilbin achieved that in this book. Um, I, I can think of examples um, where his stuff is added to an adaptation and it just you know, it's the story that used to be about you know, political intrigue is now more of a romantic comedy okay that's probably not a good change right 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 um we had that question earlier that i mean we've talked about it a lot what's more important tone or structure in an adaptation and I mean, I don't, I don't mean to be blunt, but I'm pretty sure it's always going to be tone, right? Like structure is going to have to shift because we're shifting around all this stuff and everything you guys are saying is very positive. I'm, I'm not, I shouldn't be shocked, but usually when you talk to somebody that knows the text so well, they're going to pull out some things that are really bothersome. So maybe we'll, we'll get some of that still. There's still half hour, but you know, it, it's so nice to hear like the support of the changes like this made sense because it still landed this made sense because it still landed and yeah i think you're right as long as that comes through it works partially because i've listened to your podcast and you know, we've talked about adaptation i was watching the film constantly thinking about some of the change and there are times when i said man i wish they could have had this scene from the book i wish they could have done the banquet scene mm -hmm. i wish we could have spent more time with the harkonnens i wish we could have had fade but I also could not think through a way to make that happen without the film dragging on or without introducing a bunch of names and terms and concepts that would alienate most audience members. Like if you notice, the word mentat is never uttered in the film. And I, as a Dune fan, would love to hear more discussion about mentats in the film, but I also realized you didn't need it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one really like small thing, which, well, it, it puzzled me not because of their leaving it out in the film, but because I felt like they set it up and then they didn't pay it off. They had the bull's head. Mm. You know, we got the whole scene of the packing up of the bull's head and the packing up of the picture of the. And the zoom Duke. in on the bull fight. Yeah, yeah, we got all that stuff. And so I was ready. I, you know, Dom, I didn't know if we were going to get the banquet scene or not, but I was all ready for like the hanging up of the bull's head in Arakeen and maybe even the debate between Jessica and Leto about like whether or not it had to be there. <laughs> right. Um, but like it got packed up in a box and we never saw it again. I don't think, I don't remember seeing it again. It certainly didn't get emphasized in the, and, um, so I, I was, I was, I was a little like, I felt like it was setting, I, I was really impressed when I saw it in the film. I'm like, I can't believe they did the bull's head, um, and are, you know, giving this time to the, to the, all the bullfighting stuff. Um, and then we didn't, we didn't get it. We didn't get it back again. I mean, I guess in a sense, like the, I mean, there's an, in the book, there's an obvious parallel, right? Between the bull and Baron Harkonnen. Um, uh, at least I, I, I think that, that, that's sort of a fairly queer little parallel that we get the, the old Duke bullfighting, um, uh, putting himself at risk 
in the bull in the ring and dying uh, because the bull kills him, and the parallel between Duke Leto coming to Arrakis, putting himself deliberately in danger, knowing that he's goading the bull, um, that he's being set up and going to be trapped, and and that Harkonnens are going to try to spring the trap on him, um, but like a matador, he's going to face the bull, and of course the bulk of the Baron making it with the sort of physical parallel to the bull. Um, so I was, you know, there's all that stuff kind of going on in the book. And I, I thought they were, I, so in a sense, I guess, like you could say that, you know, the arrival of Baron Harkonnen is like the payoff of the bull stuff. But it, I don't know. That was the one that, well, it was, that was one like little small disappointment that I had. Not again, not just from like they changed the thing from the book, but because they set it up, um, I found it in the end a little puzzling i was wondering if they cut something i, I don't know like is this an it was almost issue? like they yeah either they cut something or they were trying for an easter egg but they leaned too hard like mm-hmm. you hinted <laughs> too heavy on that easter egg for now it became important right 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 yeah i don't know it's a mm-hmm. it's a small point but uh but i thought that was that was a little strange can i ask what you guys thought about where it ended where the first film ended um because I, I thought it went too long. I, I would have been quite happy with Jessica and, and Paul on top of the dune looking off into the horizon. But I also understand that we had to spend more time with the Fremen and understand their culture a bit more. So I assume that's why they put it on to kind of introduce that theme. But it didn't fit for me pace-wise. And, and I'm just curious, especially because where you think it should end and what is important for us going into the second half. What do we need to be aware of? What cliff are we hanging on? I was actually pretty happy with the way it ended because yeah. I think, you know, if you look at the book, there's a very definite transition between the Atreides Imperium world and then you're moving into the Fremen world, which is very, mm-hmm. very different. And I think the way that they've done this is they've they've given you the Imperium part of the, of the puzzle. Now they're giving you a little tiny bit of the Fremen part and setting you up for the rest of the movie, which is going to be very Fremen, um, for, I think, very Fremen heavy. Um, I was very happy with the way it ended. I'm psyched for the second one, which is, I think, the, the, a good a good thing for it to have done is to set me up for the, to really look forward to the second one. Yeah, I was also, I wouldn't say I was, I wouldn't say, I, I understand the criticism that it may have gone on too long, um, but again, this is one of those adaptation choices where I tried to think of a better place to end it, knowing that they have to include right. they have to include this, the, the fight with Jameis. Like that is right. going to be somewhere. If it's going to be in part one or part two, and you know, but and, and, and I could see an argument for making this a TV show because there's a lot of content cover. But given that it's not a TV show, given that it has to go somewhere, it makes sense. I think where it is. Um, especially because at this point in the book, shortly after the fight with Jameis, there is a time jump. And I suspect Dune Part 2 is going to, I don't know if they're going to state it outright, but I suspect there's going to be a, a, at least a bit of a time jump between the two movies. So you the, couldn't have the, put the Jameis the, like, fight two-year in Part time two. jump is probably going to be before, right. between you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm thinking. And so you can't have to fight Jameis in Part 2. So I just, I don't know how else you fit they that in. Yeah, and it was also really important that we start to see Paul's awakening and and Allegiance leaving what he's known. 
And, and I love how they played up the relationship of Paul and his father and like making that choice and coming into his own. And that plays onto all the, you know, the monomyth stuff that we've talked about before and just mm-hmm. taking up that mantle, answering that call, but not in a way we thought he would. Mm-hmm. I think Paul, Paul undergoes a transformation even within the first movie. He kind of starts out in some ways very passive. I mean, he's 15 years old, so he's, you know, very undeveloped, but he starts out very kind of passive. I mean, compared to like, for example, the um, sci-fi channel version where Paul starts out just very, very angry and very um, aggressive. In this one, he's much more passive, but then you see him becoming more kind of stronger. He's fighting against the storm. And then he's in this scene where he has to kill his first person and he does it and he's not happy about it, but he does it because he has to. And then I think that sets us up really nicely for, I think we're going to see a real transformation of Paul in the second movie where he's going to be a lot more of a stronger character who's making things happen rather than having things happen to him. Mm-hmm. And the Jamie's bite is also really important. This might not be fully clear to folks who've only seen the movies and not read the books, but the Jamie's bite is crucial too, because it's one of the first times that Paul is really using prescience to see the future and he's seeing, you know, he's seeing, jihad he's also thinking well what happens if Seamus kills me like i can see that future i can see another future and this is something i actually played around with a bit in the article i wrote for our book about how um this is kind of this is a turning point and he may i don't know if paul fully realized it at the time but the fight with Seamus was a turning point if paul had been killed during the fight with Seamus, the future would have been different the jihad probably would have happened and a bunch of consequences later on paul's choices his decision space starts to really narrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it really is an enormous turning point, the fight with Jameis. Um, yeah, I, that was my prediction as to where it was going to end, was right after the fight Ooh. with Jameis. I do agree with um, uh, Blood Little Tempered on, on uh, uh, the Twitch chat, is saying that he was surprised he didn't choose his name. Yeah. Um, mm. I was surprised by that, too. I kind of expected... Paul Muad'Dib to be you know, like among the last words said in in, mm-hmm. in part one, and I was surprised that that didn't happen. What do you guys think about that? Why? I mean, because it's it's huge, right? I mean, on the one hand, I guess you could say it's a it's a way of, like you know the, he he's Lizan Al Gaib in the first film and Muad'Dib in the second film. You know, in 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 one sense, you could say we did get Mahdi briefly, right uh, among the Fremen who were, um, you know, guarding the outside of the ecological center there at the end, um, but um, but anyway, yeah, to sort the of say with Jamis was a little end. bit strange because, first of all, it takes place outside, which that kind of graded on me a little bit. It's like you, the Fremen don't fight outside; they don't have right. these kind of fights outside because you lose water and all that kind of thing. Yeah, but there is no there is no follow up with the funeral and his mourning for what he's done, the Balisette and the um, the naming, all of that is missing. And I'm wondering how, it's gonna look a little weird in the second movie if they try and have that scene. But maybe, you know, one thought that occurred to me is maybe they're saving everything that happens in the siege. They're just kind of saving it for, for budget reasons and maybe kind of ooh-ah reasons for the, the siege to become part, you know, we only see that in the second movie, but that, that's one of the things that we're, it's on our things we're looking forward to list. I just had an idea. 
what if what if they're going to do the naming the arrival at the siege the reverend mother ceremony all that stuff right what if they're going to be doing that at various points in flashbacks so that they lean into the messing up of the temporal framework in the second film because we're getting like flashing back to the past flashing forward to the future um they could be they could be they could lean into the whole temporal scale yeah. shift by introducing mm-hmm. more of that in flashback, then you'd have just more opportunity to mess with the temporal frame. Um, is this a memory of the past? Is this a memory of the future from Paul? Right. So, um, sorry. It, I, that would certainly work well. An idea yeah. I just had, but yeah, <laughs> we'll take that. Would be, that would be cool. That would be cool. Um, you guys um, had talked a fair bit to us before just about comparison to Lord of the Rings. So I just kind of wanted to make sure that we at least brought that up if, if that's a burning topic you want to discuss. If, you know, we talk about it a lot here. Um, <laughs> just the comparison, if, if, if that's a, a topic you want us to expand on or if we're happy just kind of doing this. I'm loving this too. I don't know. Those two movies are, those two franchises or whatever you want to call it are kind of compartmentalized in my brain so. and it feels like a really big topic <laughs> and it feels like a really big thing to bring to the it table does. with 15 well, they're, they're wonderful books but for very different very different reasons one one is a dystopia the other one's a oh yeah utopia various ways so they're just very mm-hmm. very different but I, I think one thing i would mention about that comparison is that um I don't, we don't have to go too far in comparing the books and the movies, but um, I did find it interesting that uh, one of the, you know, in the Lord of the Rings films, obviously there was a choice to quote unquote humanize or make some of the characters more relatable. And I think we saw something similar with, with Dune. Um, the characters in Dune are pretty humorless. Um, and, and, and I think in the movie, they show more emotion. Duncan, Duncan Idaho mm-hmm. is he's a bit of a bro and mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that's, that might just be a Jason Momoa thing, but it also, um, it was clearly a choice to make him a bit more humorous. Jessica mm-hmm. cries uh, mm-hmm. several mm-hmm. times or shows grief Strong or emotion. concern. And that's just Jessica in the book doesn't do that, but you know, kind of, I'd be interested to kind of get thoughts on that. And my, my, my feeling is that um, June comes across as a, a text that exists within the secondary world of Dune. Um, it, mm-hmm. It's almost a compiled historical text, so it's um, it's more, you know, more Robert Caro than like HBO drama. Um, and it's, you know, history books are often not known for uh, talking about the emotions, exp- showing the emotions of their historical subjects. I, so I think just as an adaptation, I think the movie had to to convey some of that, and I don't see that as contradicting the book all that much and there were some things some of the ways in which that i'm I'm thinking about duncan idaho in particular right one of the things that i felt very strongly in the book was paul's attachment to duncan idaho but the book does very little to attach me as a reader to duncan idaho so I felt like I had a lot of like secondhand attachment. <laughs> like I could tell that I was supposed to feel very strongly, like because Paul was feeling very strongly. But, um, but I mean, I, we don't, I mean, we meet Duncan Idaho several times, but we don't, we're not given many reasons to connect with him really. Um, I feel in the book. Um, 
Gurney more than Duncan uh, in that way uh, within the book. But I, so I really liked the way that Jason Momoa played Duncan Same. Idaho, and I definitely felt more of an it. Even, even the fact, again, in the book, we are told that Duncan Idaho is one of the greatest fighters known, right? But I'm pretty much asked to accept that on faith. I, I see very, we're given very little reason. I mean, like, there's some indirect ways, like the fact that he's accepted by the Fremen is, you know, an indirect uh, endorsement of his fighting skills. Oh. But again, that, that was another thing you really felt another claim in the book. We're told that Gurney Halleck and Duncan Idaho had trained their people, you know, almost to the level of equaling the Sardaukar, right? But again, I'm, I'm kind of asked to take that on faith. Like, I'm, we don't see it. We don't, we're not shown it, really, in the film. Uh, or, sorry, in the book. In the film, we are, at least, at least with Duncan, and to some extent with Gurney as well, we're sort of shown that much more much more clear. We're, we're, we're made to feel that. And I thought that that was, I thought that was a really good, so I really liked the characterization, especially of, um, especially of Duncan. And I was really glad that they gave Gurney his uh, random quotations from the Orange Catholic Bible. I thought that was, <laughs> that was another thing I really appreciated. <laughs> In the, I, I, I cheered the first time he quoted, he, he, he gave an apt quotation uh, for a moment. So. I think that humanizing element is kind of necessary for this too. You know, there's a question in the chat about why this wasn't as successful as some of the other things like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. And it comes off as a super, super science, science, science fiction, right? Like it, it is much more that ilk than it is fantasy. And that's kind of always a little bit more of an uphill battle in the film world and isn't necessarily associated with blockbuster mentality. And it came out at the end of the pandemic. Most people weren't going to cinemas. So like success, sure, that's going to be an uphill battle anyway. But in terms of story, you kind of need that engagement. And I didn't get that necessarily from the text. You could find it. You could seek it out. But it wasn't given to me. So yeah, seeing the strong emotion of his mother when he was going through the pain challenge and seeing that camaraderie between Duncan and himself and the ease of Duncan too. We're like, he is a bro, you know? So like, we do have that kind of personality, you know, in this world. Okay, cool. So you have that kind of, you know, and, and Paul having a bad day, like in training, you can't have a bad day. I don't care if you're not in the mood, you know, there were these, mm -hmm. these nice moments that, that you could relate to. I think it could have used more to be honest, which might have gone against book expectation, which is a risk. So I can see why they didn't lean into that farther, but we didn't have comedic lines. We didn't have, you know, moments you could really like hang your hat on of like, that was great. It was just kind of a long, <laughs> slow loveliness, right? I think the first part of the movie with the uh, interaction between Paul and his father. Mm. Um, yes. Oh, that was lovely. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's not, it's not terribly well-founded in the book, but it sets up, the, sets up a lot of things really, really nicely for what, you know, the relationship between Paul and his father. And um, I enjoyed it a lot, even though it's not in the book. <laughs> it's actually... And the importance, 
no, go ahead, go ahead. And the importance of the decision that Paul has to make. You know, we know yes. from the very beginning he might not want to take up that mantle. And his dad yeah. says, well, I didn't either at one point. However, it was given an option, you know. So yeah. when his father does die, you're like, oh, God. You know, the import of that choice mm -hmm. is just hammered into us. Yep. And has such a good payoff an hour right. and a half later. And the way that that got visually hung on the signet ring um, mm -hmm. made both the before and after scenes really, really powerful in that way. Um, now, I was just going to say that, um, Trevor, what you said about the its relationship to the book is fascinating, isn't it? Because this, I think, would be a really, um, it would be a whole separate study, actually. It'd be really fun to do a deep dive into that and look at, because, I mean, what you can see happening is that conversation between Paul and Leto in the film, in the graveyard-like tomb area right when they're talking with the ring and all that stuff um is sort of like they're doing the work that is done in like five different scenes in the book right especially a whole bunch of the ones that are on arrakis um you think of the interactions between leto and paul on arakeen and we got almost none of that um i mean we get the thopter ride right um on the day that they see the sandcrawler eaten but uh apart from that we get very little interaction between leto in fact we get very little interaction among people at all in arakeen um once they're there um we get the shit out mapes but very little else anyway um uh so it would be fascinating to look at like the work that's done in the relationship between leto and paul in all of their scenes you know uh, basically in the whole book, you know, up until Lido dies and compare that with like the work that's being done in that one. Because I do felt that they were kind of piling it all in there, but it, it, it worked really smoothly. Of course, I didn't realize the first time I saw the film when I saw that scene that that was like mostly going to be it <laughs> for Lido and Paul, like, cause they hadn't even left Caladan yet. So I, you know, I'm like, Oh, this is just the beginning, but no, no, that was really most of it. So, um, yeah. it's a fascinating example of some of the, the kind of compression that you're forced to do. Like, how do you, how do you accomplish these? You know, so like, what did they accomplish? What did they change? What elements of their relationship did they choose to omit? And what are the consequences of those choices? Um, I, it would be interesting to do a deep dive into that, uh, particular I, I hadn't really been thinking about it in that way but um your your point there trevor made me think about that i think the um, other thing i noticed kind of along those yeah, yeah no sorry. i was just gonna say one of the things i kind of noticed along those lines is that there's not a lot of dialogue from the book in the movie mm -hmm. but somehow that works and i think it works because they're trying to they're trying to explain a story and in order to do that, they've had to make some changes, but they've kept to the, at least in my opinion, they've kept to the spirit of the book. They've kept to the spirit of the book, even though they've had to change some of the dialogue. Um, that's kind of in contrast, like for example, the, uh, the graphic novel adap adaptation, which I was a little bit disappointed with because it does keep very clearly to the uh, text. It you know, quotes huge chunks of it. But it doesn't work. There's something very wooden about it. And mm -hmm. the movie, on the other hand, really works well, even though it doesn't have a whole lot of dialogue from the book. And I think the dialogue in the book is a bit, uh, what it might be too strong a word, but uh, almost overly regal at times or overly formal. You know, and I think it lends that sense of historical authenticity as if somebody was writing 
this down years later and there's some scenes and I, know, I remember Corey you pointed out some of these examples during your podcast course about Dune just some quotes that really do seem like somebody said hey this is going to be a great great quote for the historians like let us make sure to underline this <laughs> right. um, but that's not that's not film dialogue you know in the film right. people have to talk like people yeah 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 Good it's point. true in the book I mean and this um I wonder if this has something to do even with the kind of woodenness that you're thinking of in the more direct adaptation in the graphic novel Trevor um and thinking about Dom just what you were just saying there is that element of like you're almost aware of Princess Irulan's editorial intervention in the dialogue and stuff especially like these are the crucial quotes that you should know um which doesn't feel organic. But again, it's the frame, the Princess Irulan frame is so persistent in the book that we're kind of put into this sort of frame of mind. Um, it keeps us, in my opinion, one of the, one of the effects of all the, 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 the epigraphs from, from um, Princess Irulan is it distances us from the text. Like we don't, we're not just, we're constantly reminded that this is a historical thing that we're seeing at a distance and it, it pushes us back. Um, even as we begin to become drawn in and engaged um, with the characters in the story. Um, and the film does not, doesn't do that, doesn't allow for that. Uh, and so therefore puts it on a different footing. Well, I've got like five minutes. So um, thoughts for the second film, anticipations, what are things that you um, are most excited about, most looking forward to, most uh, sort of questions that you have? about the second film? I wonder how much they're going to go into. I mean, you know, Dune really is two books. It's two thirds of a book mm -hmm. that ends with Dune Messiah. And then it's kind of a book in its own right. And I really wonder how much they're going to bring in of, you know, what we see in Dune Messiah, where he becomes this tyrant and the, not to give anything away, but the, there's going to be a lot of very bad things happening. Um, are we going to see any of that or is it going to end kind of where the book does with him on kind of a high note? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I yeah, that's, kind of, I'm kind of surprised if they don't have a little bit of Dune Messiah at the end of that. That Yeah. I didn't, I didn't even thought of that question, but that's a really interesting. Question. Well, the good news for all of us is that Denny Villeneuve has already talked about adapting Dune Messiah. He said that his, <laughs> that is his goal. Now we all have to get to the theater to make that happen. Um, <laughs> right. But I, I do, th yes. So I do think that they're going to have to um, just be a bit less subtle with the themes of Paul's descent into dictatorship. Like you, you can't be as subtle as Frank Herbert was in the book in a major Hollywood film. And I, I was, I was pleasantly surprised at the first part. Like it is there. The message is there. It is foreshadowing that Paul is not going to be the savior of these, of these people. Mm -hmm. Um, and what I've heard from Denny Villeneuve in interviews is he's compared Paul's arc in the first two Dune movies as something akin to Michael Corleone in The Godfather. And that mm -hmm. to me seems about exactly right. And then first Godfather, Michael Corleone just ends up on top, but you know, and he does some bad things, but he's not, you, you don't see the worst of it by the end right. of the first. He's not Godfather. a full villain completely yeah. by the end. Yeah. 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 And that makes it more believable, like you said, about humanizing the characters. Like, they can't be perfect. They can't be a, an absolute savior because he's human. Yes. Yes. Although, 
decreasingly so in the second half of the book um human i mean like he becomes something weird and mm. other i mean he himself is very conscious of that too right um and that to me is going to be one of the interesting things that i'm looking for how are they going to handle paul's transition um to muadib and the choices he has to make are they going to human uh, the this pattern of humanization and the way they have brought us closer to these characters in the first film are they going to continue that with paul um I uh, um, I think that's going to be oh. interesting to see. And the temporal stuff. That's my other question. Like, how freaky is the temporal stuff going to get? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, very interesting. The <laughs> darkness. Yeah, uh, Trevor, uh, that question of... I'd, I'd never even really thought of going beyond... I mean, I admit, I had been just assuming that we were going to stop. It was going to stop at the end of the Dune book. Um, but the idea of bringing in Dune Messiah elements, integrating that into the end of the second film is a, is a, is a really, is a question I hadn't been asking, but I, but I now realize I, I should have been. Yeah. Well, and, and I think he's setting us he up won- for it. Yeah. Sorry, Trevor, what'd you say? No, I was going to say, I think he's setting it up for us, setting, setting us up for it. I think there's mm-hmm. some, bits and pieces in the in the first movie that should you know, give you a clear indication that he he's afraid that he's going to become something terrible it'd be weird if they didn't show that but whatever and, and especially <laughs> knowing that he wants to do the third film you'd want you'd want to have some set of some sort of setup for that but it's also kind of a risk because if there's no guarantee for a third film and you set that up and can't pay it off then your second film always is going to look unfinished so I hope they greenlight things before second film comes out, but I don't think they will. We'll have to see how second film goes. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, final uh, thoughts or uh, observations from either one of you before we before we head off. I don't want it's, to. It's just about time to end, but I didn't want to end before um, uh, with the. If you guys have things you wanted to add or say. Real quickly, just kind of circling back around to the book. Um, I know, Corey and Maggie, you know the story, but some of your listeners might not. Um, this book was partly due to you all um, and your you know, your, your credit or your fault. Um, we, Trevor and I, had the idea for this book at one of the myth moots a few years ago. And you know, I think we really took a lot of inspiration from the idea of um, you know, us non people who don't professionally work on literary studies or speculative fiction engaging in the scholarship. And it took a while, it took some time for the academic publishing process to work, but we now have a book out. So um, it just, you know, I, you know, I hope, hope people enjoy the book, but also just hope people you know, think of themselves as, you know, to, to the extent they want to, to think of yourselves as scholars, you know, or potential mm-hmm. scholars. Yeah, it is true that there's a, a great deal of, good work and brilliant analysis being done by people outside of, you know, people who do not have, you know, tenured jobs in traditional academic posts. Um, I have been delighted to see that work recognized. Uh, I've been so excited for you guys in the publication of this book. I think it's, I think it's wonderful. Uh, and uh, really glad, uh, really glad that that happened. Um, uh, Tomas is wondering, uh, where people can find the book. Is it on Amazon? Yep. Amazon and Kindle and hardcover, excuse me, Kindle and paperback. 
um, but it's available on Amazon and McFarland has bookseller. yeah, excellent. Wherever you excellent. wherever you buy books, <laughs> very good. Awesome. Excellent. Oh, thank you guys. Well, obviously we'll have you back for the next one. There's yeah. there's not yeah. really a yeah, choice. Yeah, we'll talk about the <laughs> second film when that comes out. Exactly. Um, when when is it coming out? out? Is, it, is it the end of this year? November. November. November, November of this year. I think okay. early November now. Nice. Okay. Do you know if they finished photography, principal photography? Pretty sure they have, but I have to double check. Oh, that was I was going to ask. So, so they, they they didn't film them together. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a continuous no, thing. No. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. That'll be interesting in and of itself to see. Yeah, to see that if they, it's an actual return. It does um, seem an important question, doesn't it? Like if what mm -hmm. we're seeing is just like. If they the had next. the whole thing in mind before they put it out, or if they, you know, the second one is being done. Anyway, yeah, interesting, mm. interesting. It does make sense for a time jump. I agree, um, as they're saying on Twitch chat there. Um, but cool, awesome. Well, great. Well, we will look forward to talking with about you guys with the set for the second film when that comes out. Looking forward to seeing that. Um, uh, thanks everybody for joining us today uh, for another discussion. We're going to be back next week. Um, I'm not here next week, so red flag. Oh, right. That's right. Yeah. So we Not might change time or we might yeah. skip week or oh, it might just right. be Corey, but we'll let you know ASAP. We'll figure it out. We'll figure okay. it out. Awesome. Thanks again. Thanks everybody. And we will see you guys again soon. Thanks again, Trevor and Dom for joining Thank us. Really appreciated having you guys here. Thank you. Okay. Bye everybody. Bye guys. Thanks. Thanks for having us. It was fun. Yeah. Thank you.